Welcome to Blue Dot, a look at our place in space. I'm Dave Sloan. The SETI Institute in Mountain View, California is the home of many world-class scientists in many different scientific disciplines. In this episode, we get to visit once again with one of their stellar scientists, Dr. Pascal Lee. Recently, the Wonderfest organization in the San Francisco Bay Area named Lee its 2023 winner of the Carl Sagan Prize. The criteria of the prize is for the scientists to have done meaningful scientific research over their career, be an excellent scientific communicator in the tradition of Carl Sagan and live in the Bay Area. Pascal Lee definitely checks all of those boxes and more, and he joins us now. Pascal Lee, welcome back to Blue Dot. Oh, thank you, David. Thank you for having me again. Well, I'd like to know um, what your reaction was at first when you found out you'd won this prize, because I know Carl Sagan's very important to you. I was really very uh, surprised and, and touched and humbled by this prize, especially because of who Carl Sagan was, uh, of his uh, enormous impact globally on the popularization of science and, and on, on my own life. I grew up in, in France. I used to read his books in boarding school after curfew under the blankets. You know, they were page turners for me. And so, and then eventually I went to graduate school at Cornell where I ended up being his last TA. So there, there was, you know, I had a connection obviously in my life with, uh, with, with Carl and to, to get this, this prize was, was, was really special. I was looking at the, uh, the, the three main criteria and I was wondering if we could kind of run through them together with you. It says, first of all, it says that you have contributed wonderfully Wonderfest is the name of the organization, to the public understanding and appreciation of science. So what does, what does that mean to you, to, to have contributed wonderfully? You know, I can think of many people who have contributed far more than I have to the popularization of science. But in, in my case, when I, when I hear that, I think of, I think all the talks, public, public lectures, school visits that I have done over the years, maybe for the past, I don't know, 25 years, and hopefully the impact that that might have had on popularizing science. So I, I usually give talks on space exploration and why we should go to Mars, how to go to Mars, but also on our search for extraterrestrial life, uh, including intelligent life maybe out there. and. To me, this is an important mission and responsibility for every scientist to, to share with the public what they learn from science, but also you know, what can come from it in, in the future. And so I, I, I find the public to be generally very receptive to, to this information. And I, I derive a lot of you know, personal joy and reward in sharing uh, science. So I do this again with the public, museums, you know, astronomy groups, just general public, but also uh, schools. And schools, this is really where you get a sense that, hey, you might actually help shape, shape the life of a kid somehow. <laughs> you know, they might become an astronomer uh, or, a, you know, a space engineer or, or, or something that is connected to your visit following, you know, your, your, your presentation. So, uh, I get the sense that it can be impactful. Wonderfully. And I, I agree. And, you know, you never know 
uh, a lot of times, especially with school children, you know, the impact you could have that you might not find out about till years later when some somebody reaches out to you and says, you know, you, you came and spoke at my school and that's why I'm doing what I'm doing now. Yes. Yes. And, you know, it, it, this actually does happen to me occasionally. I mean, not often, but it does happen that mm-hmm. some student years later writes some, you know, out of the blue just to say hi and thanks. And it's great. It's great. It's a great feeling. And then the second one is pretty simple. You have to be a resident of one of the nine Bay Area counties. So uh, which, which county do you live in? I live in Santa Clara County. And then, of course, you have to have a history of accomplishment in scientific research. And you've got so much. But maybe uh, what would be a couple of the things you're most proud of that you've accomplished in the field of research? Well, most recently, in fact, just a few months ago, we reported finding uh, a glacier on Mars. Now, that in itself is not new. We know of glaciers on Mars. But this one was special in sort of three ways. One, it is a modern glacier, so the ice might still be there. Uh, Second, it's near the equator. Now, that is unheard of. Uh, And that is particularly exciting because, you know, when we send humans to Mars down the road, the general thinking is that we should send them to a place where they could harvest water, water from ice in the ground to to help them survive, but also to to turn the water into rocket fuel. H2O can be turned into hydrogen and oxygen as rocket fuel. Uh, So there's a strategic advantage to being, to landing in a location that is near water, even if it's ice on Mars. But that, until uh, finding, meant that they would have to land at relatively high latitudes where it's you know colder. And the cold is not good for people, but it's not good for electronics, for, for, for everything. Uh, so finding a glacier that might somehow still be preserved near the equator, it's, it's potentially a game changer because now all of a sudden you could, you could really be in a much warmer place. But the third reason why this, this is exciting is because uh, this glacier is located in one of the most exciting places of, on Mars. It's it's in canyon country and at the same time in volcano country. Uh, and so this is what I call the the David Scott factor. Uh, David Scott was the astronaut. Apollo command- 15. Yeah, exactly. Very good. And, you know, before his mission, Apollo 15, scientists were bickering about, you know, where where they should go land. And two sites were finalists, the Marius Hills, which was a volcanic uh, uh, sort of field to the upper left of the moon, <laughs> and, the, and Hadley Apennine, Hadley, Hadley Rill, which is a, essentially a lava tube near the center of, of the moon. Well, still in the northern hemisphere, but uh, more, a more central longitude. And in any case, uh, they couldn't decide which place to go to. And David Scott, who was attending that meeting of, of scientists and managers, was asked for his opinion. And he essentially said something to the effect, well, which would be the most spectacular location from a visual standpoint to reward the public for paying for you know, such, a, such a journey? And the answer was unanimous. It was Hadley Rill. It was a mountainous, spectacular backdrop 15,000 foot high mountains yes exactly exactly well you know your history really well there uh, yeah, David so I know exactly what he said he said uh, when the, he was 
discussing the two sites, Marius Hills, and said, you know, there's a lot of scientific value in going there. But he said, Hadley Apennine has something special. It has grandeur. And I believe in the exploration of beautiful places. And that was, you know, like you said, that's what sold it. Exactly. That's exactly what sold it. So this place on Mars near our glacier has grandeur. Mm. So I'm particularly excited about that. So that's, that's one science finding that's recent. Uh, you know, the other thing you, you said, two, two contributions. Well, the other maybe that over the years we've been built, making the case that Mars was probably never really warm, like we are so widely led to believe uh, by peer-reviewed publications and the, you know, even the science community. There's always the thinking that early Mars was a warmer and wetter place you know, it might have rained, whether it might have been oceans of sloshing water. And the the truth, I think, is that, and this is based on all our field work in the Arctic, the, the truth probably is that Mars has always been as cold as it is today from a climate standpoint. The planet was always frigid. And that, incidentally, is a lot easier to do than to make early Mars warm because the sun at the time when Mars was supposed to be warmer than, than today, the sun was actually 25% dimmer than it is today. It was still a young sun that was growing in, in brightness. Uh, and so we're fixing more than one problem by saying that Mars wasn't warm early in its history. Uh, but what was warm and still meant that there was more liquid water near the surface of Mars than today, at the time was the ground. The ground was warmer because the planet was younger. There was more heat flow from the inside of the planet, heat escaping the planet. The volcanism was more pervasive. Impacts from asteroids and comets were more frequent. So the ground was warmer, but the atmosphere above it was always frigid. And so the the way in my view to picture early Mars was a, it was a place that had patches here and there of ice deposits and glaciers and ice caps, which were melting from their base. And that's how you were forming all these intricate valley networks that you see. And we see this type of valleys in the Arctic, uh, you know, being revealed for the first time as glaciers are, are melting away. Uh, we see that type of drainage that is so bizarre and characteristic and that, that we see on Mars, we, we see them now being revealed underneath retreating ice sheets and ice covers. So to make a long story short, I, I think that, you know, another contribution I'm proud about science-wise is to have proposed something like 25 years ago that Mars was, Mars's climate was never warm, but, uh, but always as cold as it is today. And the only difference was the ground at the time was warm. Yeah. You know, the internal heat that created those volcanoes in that that magnificent area that you found your glacier. That's that's fascinating because, you know, that it always has been the paradigm is that, whoa, once Mars was warmer and wetter. Yep. Yes. Fascinating. Yes. Well, it sounds like you definitely have met all three of the criteria. You definitely deserve this award. Um, let's go back to uh, Carl Sagan. And I'd like to know, um, when did you first find out that you were going to go to Cornell? And, and how did it come about that you got to be his teaching assistant? Well, when I was growing up in high school in France, I, you know, coming to America someday was my American dream. This was the land of NASA, the land, uh, the, the country where people were going to the moon. And of course, the land of Carl Sagan because Carl had written books that were bestsellers worldwide. 
And so I was reading his books. And, you know, I think the book that was most impactful to me was The Cosmic Connection. I think you and I have talked about this before. Uh, the Cosmic Connection is actually a, one of the earlier books he wrote. It was about uh, his personal journey as a planetary scientist. And I remember reading that book before he called, became well famous with Cosmos and his TV series. Uh, and I was reading The Cosmic Connection under my blankets in, in school after curfew. You know, with, with a pocket the, light. with the little flashlight, the little yeah. flashlight, yeah, because you know you have to be asleep by ten, and you know, not so. You're not the only little kid to have ever done something like that. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I remember that that is the book that you know made me choose. I mean, I knew I wanted to do something in space all along, but I wasn't quite sure what. But becoming a planetary scientist is 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 something that I owe to this book. So. So from that point on, going someday to America and specifically to to where Carl was teaching, Cornell was was sort of a uh, it, it it was a dream. And then I I still went through schooling in France. I went to college in Paris. I studied physics and then geology and geophysics at the University of Paris. And then of course France at the time still had a military draft for for young men. So I. I had to take off for a year after my college studies in Paris to to go serve. And I had applied three years ahead of time for this one position that they had uh, for a geologist, geophysicist in Antarctica. And so somehow applying three years ahead of time allowed me to get that <laughs> one job. And so instead of going to I don't know, Germany or some other NATO country and run around with a machine gun for a year. I went to Antarctica to do geology. Uh, and on my way to Antarctica, so I was flying from Paris to Southern Australia. There was a plane stop in Singapore. And I remember I posted my one application to one graduate school in the US because I was running behind and getting it ready before I left. I finished it on the flight and I posted my one application for one graduate school in the US in Singapore. And then I went to Antarctica and sometime in the middle of the winter, I get this telex because at the time there was no internet or email. No email. Yeah. Yeah. This was in the late eighties here, the, the prehistory of our civilization. I get this telex from Cornell saying, Pascal, looking forward to seeing you in Ithaca, New York in the fall of 89. So that was it. Did you tell him the story of reading the Cosmic Connection under the covers? I'm sure. Yes, I'm sure I, I did. I hope you did. Yes, I'm sure I did. But I, I don't remember doing that, say, during the interview or anything. I, <laughs> you know, you know that, that's, that's more of a blur at this point. But the nice thing about being his TA for this course, well, first of all, it was a course in science writing, okay? And, you know, he was going to take on only 25 students and 3,000 <laughs> undergrads applied at Cornell to be in his class. So one of the first thing I had to do was sort of read resumes and, and somehow... Um, Gosh, it sounds like astronaut selection process. It's if not worse, but yes. So so I, we had to say no to a lot of good people. Basically, it was a bit arbitrary, but in the end, uh, we picked twenty five students, and then from then on, 
Kyle was teaching very professionally. You know, I mean, he was he wasn't missing classes. He was always there. He you know held office hours. He was just a great prof. But every two weeks, the students were assigned an essay to write. And of course, uh, Kyle wanted to grade them, but he wanted me to also grade them independently. But the way he wanted this done was to have me join him on Saturday afternoons at his home, so that we could essentially grade great essays, you know, side by side, compare notes and and grade them together. So I had this incredible privilege of you know, wow, being in Carl's living room every Saturday afternoon for a semester, you know, with Anne busying around doing her thing, Andrew and his wife, and Carl grading papers. It was amazing. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Pascal Lee from the SETI Institute in Mountain View. Lee was recently named the Wonderfest organization's Carl Sagan Prize winner for 2023 for his outstanding research and communication skills. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back, and thanks for listening to Blue Dot. Now let's return to our visit with Pascal Lee, winner of the 2023 Carl Sagan Prize from Wonderfest in the Bay Area. And, you know, he was such a, a great communicator. His writing, you know, as you know, loving those books, I, I, don't, I can't think of another science person that ever wrote as beautifully as he did. And, you know, that came across in the, the, the television series Cosmos. The writing was just so fantastic. His facility with the English language was just absolutely off the charts. Yes. Oh, totally. And the thing as well, though, is he, he also had a very disciplined process. Uh, I asked him how he wrote his books, and he told me. He said, first step is I use a dictaphone. So I do an audio recording of my you know, anticipated chapter. So he basically spends an hour or two talking into his voice recorder and going over essentially the chapter he's, he wants to write. And he then gets that typed up by an admin assistant who, uh, who turns that into a first draft. And then from that point on, he will make edits to it every week or two weeks or so. And he would go typically through 13 rounds until he was sufficiently happy with his chapter to submit it. So that was his process. And I guess that the key thing was there was a lot of, uh, you know, discipline from his, from his end. He was very intent on f- checking facts on, wording things precisely, like you said, on making them very, you know, easy to understand, but at the same time, have things really be beautifully written. It, it, it was a real craft, I guess is what I'm trying to say, to learn about his process and, and, and how he wrote books. Yeah. How wonderful that you were able to be, get an inside view of that process. And, you know, you mentioning him, him uh, using the dictaphone and, and speaking it in his first iteration, uh, that makes total sense because when you read his works, his voice is just absolutely there when you read his words. Yep. 
exactly. Th- that is why it's so relatable. It's because it's communicated by voice actually at first. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. So he's, he's literally speaking to write, writing to speak, which is, a, it's a, that's a rare talent. It's not something that's easy to do. What are some of the big you know, takeaways you had uh, you, as you think back on it, especially now, you know, having, you know, won the Carl Sagan prize, what are some of the things you look back on you, you realized that made him such a special educator? Well, you know, I, I consider him to be, you know, a great figure that I was just privileged to meet in my life and then know. But at the same time, I, you know, because I had a chance to know him, he, he was actually very relatable and, and very human. He was very nice. Uh, you know, one might think that he, he would have been aloof or distant, but uh, he, he wasn't. He was very personable in person, gave time to his students, just very caring and paid attention to details. Wasn't just, uh, not at all about just fluff. In hindsight, I think that's actually a rare quality because I, I you know, come to meet <laughs> other known people in over the years and they're, they're not all like that. Carl was really the real thing. He was as thorough as he, as he appeared to be in his, uh, in his life and in his professional life. And he was just really very nice to, to work with. Very professional. Uh, I want to maybe tell this little story. You know, in his living room, there was this uh, full-size mock-up of the Rosetta Stone. And, um, you know, as you know, the Rosetta Stone is this uh, uh, rock tablet. I mean, it's a gigantic rock, actually, but it's a, it's a rock tablet that has the same text written in three different ancient languages. And one of them was ancient Greek that people, of course, knew. Uh, but one of them was hieroglyphics. And at the time, you know, the art of reading ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics had, had been lost for, for centuries at the time when the stone was discovered. And so the discovery of the Rosetta Stone by Napoleon and his soldiers in, in Egypt uh, was really a, a, a momentous event in, you know, the history of uh, Egyptology and, you know, the archaeology of, of uh, linguistics because for the first time there was a way to really decipher hieroglyphics. And so Champollion was a, a French linguist who took on the interpretation of hieroglyphics based on the Rosetta Stone. Now, uh, Napoleon, however, was never able to get the Rosetta Stone back to France. His, uh, his navy was destroyed by the British Navy <laughs> in Aboukir <laughs> in uh, I think it's off of uh, Gaza these days, somewhere out there. And then, well, Napoleon stole the rock, the stone from Egypt, and then the British Navy stole it from Napoleon, and they took it back, and it's it's now in the British Museum, and it still is. So anyway, to film this, to tell the story of the Rosetta Stone, Carl had created a full-size, full-scale mock-up of the Rosetta Stone, and used it in Egypt while he was filming Cosmos. This is an exact replica of the Rosetta Stone. The original had been found in the year 1799 by a French soldier working on the fortifications of the Nile Delta town of Rashid, which the Europeans, in their persistence not to learn Arabic, called Rosetta. 
it had been part of a, an ancient temple which had been torn down. If we look at it, we see that it clearly represents the same text in three different languages. Up at the top, ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. In the middle, a kind of cursive and later hieroglyphic called demotic. And down at the bottom, the key to the enterprise, Greek. And of course, when the filming was done, he took it back home. But he was telling me how, because I was commenting on his Rosetta Stone, I said, wow, this is such a beautiful replica of the Rosetta Stone. He said, yes, then you won't believe how hard it was for me to get it out of Egypt a second time. <laughs> Meaning that by then, you know, the Egyptian customs and authorities had, 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 had wised up about not letting their antiquities just leave uh, the country. And this was a mock-up, of course, but it was, it was still scrutinized for quite a while and held up in customs before it was let go uh, back to the U.S. as a, as a mock-up. Oh, wow. That's a great story. <laughs> when I think of Carl Sagan and going back to his appearances on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson uh, and in the media, and then, of course, the brilliant Cosmos series and all of his wonderful books, um, he, he took a lot of heat uh, and and attacks from the scientific community, you know, as it was constructed back then in the '60s, especially and into the '70s, um, that that you know wasn't appropriate for him to be, you know, going on Johnny Carson, and that that yeah, science communication was, you know, not professional or whatever. Um, when you look back at you know now versus then, you know, I think of the new the new Beatles song now and then. What are your big takeaways when you look at you know the the battles he had to fight to communicate with the public and and do scientific outreach, which now you know uh, look at this award that you've won and the importance that is placed on science communication in in today's scientific community. What do you, what's your take on that? Yes, I mean it's this is how you recognize leadership, right? It's it's when you have a person who who breaks the bonds of and the rules of engagement, of sort of standard engagement, and expands. And you know what he did to popularize science was frowned upon. Like you said, it was it was left to people who were popularizers of science, not to scientists themselves. Uh, and you know, Carl was uh, of course celebrated, but at the same time shunned by a lot of his peers. Uh, and and. Of course, unrightly so. But at the time, uh, you know what he was doing was perceived as being, you know, heresy uh, to dumb down science, so to speak, to <laughs> to simplify it, to to make it accessible. You know, he was nominated, for example, to join the Academy of Sciences in the U.S., and there were people who objected to his nomination. And I think in the end, he wasn't never nominated. He he was not. Yeah. That's just, a, to me, a travesty. Yeah, it's, it's a type of thing that goes just to, to sheer jealousy. And, and, uh, but nevertheless, you know, he, he, he survived that and he will be – and I think, I think that it affected him at the time actually quite a bit. Not so much that he didn't get into the academy, but that, that, that there could be people, colleagues of his that thought so lowly of him that, you know, w would actually fight his nomination. I think that was that's sort of the part that is probably really not not cool. But nowadays, you know, you are not a you're not doing your job as a scientist if you don't actually spend some time with outreach and 
paying back the taxpayer, so to speak, for for what they. And to me, it's not even a transaction. It's it's you know you should, it should be part of the joy of doing science, which is to share it. He he was ahead of his time, basically, in terms of you know what he did for for the public and the popularization of science. You know, when I was looking at the, the the website for the award. Um, they had a lovely quote, uh, and I'll take just a part of it from Carl from Broca's Brain from 1979, uh, talking about where that the world of the scientists who you know look at themselves as some you know back then as some kind of priesthood and keep the knowledge to themselves, and we don't need to go share this with the general public. And he said, but if science is a topic of general interest and concern. If both its delights and its social consequences are discussed regularly and competently in the schools, the press, and at the dinner table, we have greatly improved our prospects for learning how the world really is and for improving both it and us. I thought that was beautiful. So well said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Carl, Carl, like I said, what a facility with language he had. Um, well, you get to speak to lots of different audiences, from school children to you know museum groups and you know all kinds of audiences. What are some of the interesting challenges of dealing with different audiences? Some tips you could give maybe to um, young scientists who might be listening to this. To, you know, what are some tips you could give them on on uh, your your take on science communication skills? Yeah, well, you know, I I I often just remember how hard it was for me to to grasp uh, science and new concepts as I was learning them. So um, I, I never, at least, I try not to dumb things down. That's sort of not the approach. But on the on the other hand, you you try to distill what you what is behind any scientific knowledge into things that are essentially uh, fundamental about it. And by, by going back to the roots of why is something important, even worth mentioning, you end up being able to express that, I think, quite, quite, quite simply. And you should be. I mean, that's the other thing. You know, giving, giving talks to the public and to students uh, is, is a sure way of forcing you to really analyze what we know and how we know it. Because you have to explain it. You have to explain it in ways that will pass the... The, the test of common sense and you know common sense is often derided because well first of all it's not that common <laughs> but then you know it doesn't seem to be anymore that's for sure it it can also be mis- misled but you see what i mean you you want to be able to explain something in ways that are that are not laced with jargon but uh you know if there, there's a way to do it, and so I, I, I'm on that constant quest to to try to share knowledge that that can be appreciated by as many people as possible without necessarily them having you know a very deep background in in science. Yeah, you don't want to overwhelm them, but at the same time, you want you want to engage them into your world to let you, you know the the joy of scientific discovery. Is, is something that, you know, a lot of people don't really fully fathom that that is the fun part of science is finding out yes. something brand new, you know, for, you know, for you, um, discovering that glacier on Mars, something that nobody knew about before. This is, this is something brand new. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I was talking to a, a physics teacher from Fresno State University, um, Raymond Hall, and he teaches a course there in, in 
critical thinking. It's and it's very much modeled after Carl Sagan and his book, The Demon Haunted World: Science as a Candle in the Dark, and his uh, wonderful baloney detection kit. And uh, one of the interesting takeaways I got from that is that uh, a lot of times it's it's so important to you know engage people where they're at, and if you if you take something away from them, like you know if you you explain to them why you know Bigfoot's probably not hanging around Mount Shasta or a- ancient aliens didn't build the pyramids, you have to give them something back that's 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 inspiring and fun, and the real science, the real discoveries are are what's you know inspiring and just makes you know what you. You do such a joy. Yes, yes, absolutely. And uh, you know, going back to 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 your point about reading from, uh, what Carl said about signs at the dinner table, you know, to me, it's really so important to make to 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 make sure that science is not just a purview of scientists. It, it really belongs to everybody. Science is a process. It's a it's a discipline, as in a a a behavior. It's a way of analyzing the world around you, and you know, not taking nonsense for for reality, and not confusing the two. And and it takes training, but it also is re- really something that everybody should embrace and aspire to. Understanding science pervades everything we do these days, and there's no major decision even in society that doesn't involve science these days. I mean, you know, t- AI. Uh, space exploration, you know, new power, nuclear energy, electric vehicles. I mean, everything that is at the heart of our major societal decisions are rooted in, in science, science and technology. And it's really important that we feel a responsibility as citizens to, to learn about science, even if it's not fed to us. By, by mainstream media always, you know, we, we should proactively seek to attend presentations and talks and learn about the world around us. If you're just joining us, our guest is Pascal Lee. Dr. Lee is a planetary scientist and expert on the exploration of Mars at the SETI Institute in Mountain View, California. Lee recently won the Carl Sagan Prize from Wonderfest in the Bay Area for his ongoing research and passion for communicating science to the public. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. And we're back, and thanks for listening to Blue Dot. I'm Dave Schlom. Let's return now to our conversation with SETI Institute planetary scientist and Carl Sagan Prize winner, Pascal Lee. When you, you know, speak to groups, I'm sure you get asked a lot about, well, why, you know, why spend all this money on exploring Mars or, you know, exploring space? You know, that question, I'm, I'm sure, or some iteration of it comes up a lot. What, what do you say when somebody, you know, presents that to you? Yeah, why, why spend all that money in space when we have so many problems on Earth? You know, first of all, the answer is that the money is not spent in space. You know, you're not in space opening a window and throwing banknotes out. The money is spent on Earth, here, in our factories, in our universities, in our know-how. Uh, it is a complete investment in our capability for the present and the future. So, you know, space exploration is, is not about spending money out there. It's about investing in what we can do across the board. 
That's that's the first answer. But the other answer is um, all these priorities that we think we have have to be put in the context of other aspirations we have as human beings. Uh, we can't just focus on fixing problems without looking at how the universe is made, what's out there, uh, what dangers we might face, what, what opportunities might might beckon. And it's it's really you know a combination of things that make us a balanced and advancing society to take care of our own, to take care of our problems while we also keep an eye on what's what's out there and and plan our future. Yeah, and it's just you know you we are an exploration based species. We we like to explore. We like to know what's over the next hill. And I, what I'd like to ask you about now, though, is, is let's talk about the SETI Institute. Um, not a lot of people are really aware of what the SETI Institute is and what it's all about. Uh, you're, you're a member of that team. And uh, it always kind of struck me is uh, when I, I think back about the Cosmos series, is Carl was very, uh, very interested and passionate about teaching about the, the great library at Alexandria which wasn't just a library per se of, you know, a collection of the books, you know, from that time and, and the, the scrolls of all the information from the ancient world. But it was also a collection of, of thinkers and scientists and people all gathered together um, that he found just to be inspiring and fascinating. And, you know, and sadly it was destroyed. But uh, I always think of the SETI Institute as kind of like a modern incarnation of that. Could you tell us a bit about what it's like to to work there and with the people there? And what what would you give as an elevator speech of what what is the SETI Institute? Yes, well, the SETI first of all stands for Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Now, it does a lot more than that. Uh, the SETI Institute is a nonprofit research organization. We're based in the U.S., but we have researchers around the world. And we are interested in anything that has to do with the origin of life, its prevalence in the universe, its distribution, whether or not we're alone, uh, and ultimately the, the fate of life in the universe, including our prospects of traveling into space. So somebody like myself who's, who, who's interested in uh, human spaceflight, humans going to Mars and beyond. Uh, I still find a home at the SETI Institute because it's a, it's a place that's open to the advancement of life into the universe. Uh, so, so it's a very broadly scoped organization and, and an amazing place to, to work at. I, I have colleagues who are sociologists and historians who study the fate of civilizations. I have colleagues who are deep space astrophysicists who are looking at the the evolution of stars and and the formation of planets around them. I have uh, colleagues who work on other planets of the solar system and the possibility of uh, of water on them and and maybe life. Uh, it's a it's an incredible gathering of of minds interested in this incredible phenomenon that life is and uh, in finding answers to the question of whether or not it's it's uh it's common rare or unique uh and i have of course my own perspectives on this you know i i personally think that life is probably relatively common uh 
in our galaxy, including even in our solar system. I wouldn't be surprised if we found uh, microscopic life, microbes in the deep oceans of Europa, the moon of Jupiter, or the, the less deep but nevertheless deep ocean of Enceladus, which is an icy moon of Saturn. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we found microbial life inside Mars uh, in the underground, warmer, wetter environment of the Mars underground, or even in caves on Mars's volcanoes uh, today. So those are all places that we haven't uh, explored yet. And, you know, this, this 21st century will be the time when we do that. So we should be able to get an answer as to whether or not we're, we're alone as, as far as life is concerned in general uh, in our solar system or not. But uh, I think that intelligent life, on the other hand, is probably much rarer than we think. Uh, I give a talk called N approximately equals to one, meaning that we might be the only advanced civilization, you know, objective criteria for that, even if we don't think we're that smart. Uh, but being an advanced civilization simply means that you are capable of interstellar communication. You, you have the means to communicate by radio telescopes, for example, with other civilizations if they exist. So once you've achieved this stage, you, you can communicate with others if they are around. And I think that we actually might be alone in that regard, not because we are somehow the, the result of divine creation, uh, but because it took so long on Earth to come up with uh, anything similar to intelligence. I mean, no animal uh, in Earth's history of four and a half billion years until about a million year ago was ever able to master fire, create a real tool, and modify it from one generation to the next. We're not talking about the beaver who can build a dam or a bird who can build a nest. <laughs> Okay, with 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 uh, twigs, we're we're talking about really modifying your environment technologically uh, from one generation to the next, you know, and uh, creating weaponry and uh, art. Even all of this happened within the last million year or so uh, on on our planet, and and it was not there for the bulk of the four and a half billion years of our existence. So. To me, the emergence of intelligence is something quite exceptional and not at all, not likely to be commonplace. And because of that, in spite of how many stars there are in our galaxy, and even if there are on average 10 planets around each star, uh, we could be it. That's just how the math works out. Uh, what that would mean is, you know, in the universe at large, where, you know, there are at least a hundred billion other galaxies, even if there was just one civilization per galaxy, well, we're still in very good company. Uh, but we have to look to other galaxies to find, uh, I think, an intelligent civilization, uh, at least to have a good chance of finding one. But we could be it in our own galaxy. So we don't live in a Star Trekian or Star Warsian galaxy where, you know, there are bars in the middle of the galaxy where we can all go hang out and... <laughs> play music. And I would even argue that to kind of go along with your premise that there there are intelligences on Earth, uh, the whales and porpoises, for example, or dolphins, but they don't have an opposing thumb and forefinger that enables them to manipulate tools. They may be very intelligent, they may be able to communicate, but there's no way they could create, you know, radio telescopes to communicate across, you know, yeah. interstellar space. So uh, your point is well taken. 
Yeah, exactly. I, I call these uh, sort of the dead end intelligences when it comes to interstellar communication, because like you say, they are remarkable intelligences, but they, they are not going to result in in the type of uh, understanding of the physics or, or the hardware that we need to communicate. Um, it's the oceans, but also planets, for example, that have a constant cloud cover. You know, you can imagine a sort of like a, like Dagobar, <laughs> Star Wars, a planet that's a permanent swamp, a tropical uh, swamp covered in clouds. You know, they would have no astronomy. Yeah. Uh, it would be very Can't difficult for them to achieve it. The, the rocket equation that we use to, to launch satellites and telescopes with chemical propulsion, meaning we're using fuels that are easy to make, and that would not be possible if the Earth was a super Earth, uh, like three times our Earth gravity, the rocket equation would no longer work. You, you could not use chemical propulsion to launch yourself into orbit. Uh, if we were in a, on a m more massive planet. So there, there are a number of things that are somehow right <laughs> that are working for us, which basically means that we're, I think we should consider ourselves relatively lucky and, and we should act accordingly. We should be very responsible about our planet. We should, uh, I, think, I think we should still aim to journey out there and explore other worlds and look for life. But nobody's going to come help us with... Uh, you know, blueprints of the warp drive, uh, it's going to be up to us. So, so we had better work hard and behave and, <laughs> and hope for the best. And take care of our own planet, which is and take care of our own planet, a very yes. precious place that we seem to be hell-bent on not taking care of at this point. No. It's interesting, you know, when I think about your take on N equals one from the famous Drake equation, the number of an intelligent civilizations that, that can communicate, uh, that, that you believe that number could be just us, or maybe one other at the most. And there's the, the famous Fermi paradox from Enrico Fermi yeah. Um, yeah. that basically says, okay, and you know, we've had been searching for extraterrestrial intelligence for many decades now, that, uh, okay, if there are all these intelligences out there, then where are they? Yeah, exactly. So the Fermi, I mean, Enrico Fermi won the Nobel Prize in 1938 for work related to the neutrino, but he did have an interesting opinion about, about SETI. And uh, there, there are several uh, excuses or ways to explain away the Fermi paradox. Like Carl Sagan would say humor, humorously, the, the sure sign that there is intelligence out there is that they haven't tried to contact us. Okay, so they might be <laughs> you know, too smart. Uh, we might be you know, really not smart enough to join a galactic community of, of advanced civilizations. Uh, they might be applying something that we see in Star Trek, you know, the prime directive where until we're ready to join the galactic club, we, we shall be left, you know, to, to our own devices. Uh, it could be that we're not doing SETI the right way or we're using technologies that are not really shared by other civilizations. That, that's conceivable. It could be that they are talking to us. We're just not getting the signal or not recognizing it. So that's sort of the lost in translation uh, reason. And then there's, of course, the idea that SETI has actually detected them now, but then all of this is kept under hush. So it's the conspiracy theory. It's, it's what I call the this place intentionally left blank explanation of the Fermi paradox. So 
So the Fermi paradox is a paradox only if there are actually indeed many civilizations out there, and for some reason we don't see them. But in n equals one, in that uh, hypothesis that I I sort of make, it actually solves the Fermi paradox. There's no paradox. The the reason why uh, there just aren't many out there is sort of the answer to it, and and that of course is not what most people want to hear, especially not at the SETI Institute, but at the same time, SETI Institute is a very open-minded place. And and I, for one, uh, am just suggesting that our expectations should be low to find another advanced civilization in our galaxy. Uh, I mean, you know, statistically, I think our chances are, are small, but we should nevertheless look. And we, sh we should, however, not just look in our galaxy at nearby stars, where I think chances of us finding another advanced civilization are, are small, but we should be looking at other galaxies. One, you know, one galaxy at a time will allow you to look at you know, essentially uh, several hundred billion stars at a time. And if there's one super advanced civilization out there, uh, we might actually be able to detect them. You know, they, they would be presumably pretty noisy or or not even care about being noticed because they're so far advanced. Uh, and so... And of course, the, the one of the major problems with that would be because the galaxies are so very far away, you know, uh, 2 million light years being the closest one Andromeda, that if you do detect a signal, it's, you know, it's quite ancient. Yeah. I mean, Andromeda is the, is, is the closest very large galaxy. There are quite a few smaller ones that are closer in, but you're right. When we talk about galaxies, we're talking about distances that are of order, you know, millions of light years away. And and so, so yes, I mean, it's pointless for us to even send a signal. It will, it will take, you know, that many years to get there. Uh, so what we're talking about possibly detecting is a sign of a civilization that if it was, say, an Andromeda, which is indeed 2 million light years away. Uh, if there was a very loud civilization in Andromeda and we were able to detect them, uh, we, we would still be detecting a signal from them from 2 million years ago. Uh, so, you know, hopefully they're still around and they might have, you know, in the meantime, made 2 million more years of progress. Uh, so who knows what they're capable of. But yes, we're talking about detecting the signal of a civilization from a long time ago. Pascal Lee, the winner of the Wonderfest Carl Sagan Prize for Science Popularization in 2023. Congratulations. And it was just a joy to have you on the show to talk about all this again. Oh, thank you so much, David. Thank you. Thanks again to our guest, Pascal Lee from the SETI Institute in Mountain View, California. Lee was the winner of the 2023 Carl Sagan Prize from Wonderfest, the beacon of science in the San Francisco Bay Area. You can learn more about the award and view past recipients at wonderfest.org. Blue Dot is a production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio in beautiful and talented Northern California. We're distributed by PRX. If you want to revisit, share, or check out past episodes, you can do just that on our website, mynspr.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode on our website, the NPR One app, or wherever you get your podcast groove on. Our theme music, Big Wave Dave, is by Matt Schiltz. Blue Dot is engineered and produced by the maestro, Matt Fiddler. For all of us here, I remind you there that from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot. Blue Dot.